0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to The Composite Mind, a podcast about creativity, inspiration, where we find it and how we hold on to it. Produced by Rough House Theatre and presented by me, Shane Morgan. Hello and welcome to episode two of The Composite Mind, a podcast about creativity. On the subject of creativity, there is no one better to talk to than Charlotte Bennett, Joint Artistic Director of Payne's Plough Theatre Company. I had a brilliant chat with Charlotte. She is so insightful about everything from her working process all the way through to how she started and entered the industry. There's also a really crucial section about what not to read just before you go to sleep at night. For further information, you can look at Payne's Plough website, www.paynesplough.com. I'll check in with you at the end, but in the meantime, enjoy episode two of The Composite Mind with our very special guest, the absolutely fantastic... Charlotte Bennett.
1: Katie and I started at Payne's Plough in August 2019 so we were sort of six months into into our tenure when when Covid hit and and we just sort of started our programme really because we'd started with opening show Run Sister Run by Chloe Moss in Sheffield uh, Sheffield Theatres and that was two weeks into its run that was sort of the beginning of our programme kicking off or our first season and then that all got obviously kind of cancelled so it's been it's been interesting Katie and I were saying earlier like I can't believe how busy we are when we're not making work and then I was sort of having a conversation with my mum and she was saying but is that because everyone else is at home as well so like you're all in this thing of keeping each other busy which I suppose makes sense because actually I thought oh how are we ever going to go back to like making shows and doing all this other stuff but of course everybody's just in a similar cycle so it's definitely been a kind of in lots of ways disappointing to be honest like disappointing first 12 months because we had all these best laid plans and exciting shows we wanted to make and and places we wanted to take them to and and we sort of feel like that we've been robbed of that. But I think a, on another hand, what it's made us do is really refine what it is we exist for, who we mm-hmm. exist for, what the purpose of Payne's Plow is as a whole organization, and what we kind of really focused in on when the pandemic hit was going, what's our priorities, like what do, who who are we important to now and why, and if, if indeed we're important to anyone, and where we kind of felt our place was most important was thinking about supporting freelancers particularly writers because we're writers theatre company primarily Um, through offering employment through offering opportunities to stay creative and make work and have their work shared in whatever way we could share it and also thinking about how we continue to connect with our national audiences because a lot of the work that I suppose the arts industry doesn't see about Payne's Plough is, is the amount of community and audience engagement that that runs underneath all our projects. So for every single tour that we do, we have a, a bespoke audience development plan, which goes alongside them. So we, we never turn up in a touring location without having had some form of engagement with that area and place and people there first. So that can range from workshops to kind of longer programs of activity to bespoke kind of different things that happen all over the country and so we kind of went we're in constant conversation in a way with those communities and now that conversation isn't going to happen physically so how can it happen in other ways so we sort of quickly repurposed ourselves to think how can we kind of hustle and use our imagination because that's what we're meant to do is (laughs) that's what we that's what our trade is (laughs) imagination right so let's be imaginative and let's think of other ways to do that so it's still possible and that's when we rolled out things such as a caller service a phone call plays like right at the beginning of april 2020 that kicked off so sort of offering plays over the phone to lots of communities and and partners that would engage with and sort of keeping up different conversations in new and creative ways
0: the the whole community aspect is no secret it's not as if it's a covert operation why is that something that is not picked up on more about Payne's Plough because of course it is so prolific and it is so part of the DNA of Payne's Plough why is it that no one why what you you say no one sort of generally picks up on it why is that the case
1: I think it's because it's not as industry facing so I don't think it's a bad thing it's as as I think I think it's it's not for the industry. It's for. So I suppose in terms of the artistic industry, the theatre industry, the things that people pick up on about Payne's is our shows and our work and the stories mm-hmm. that we're telling and where we're touring to. And and other stuff that happens, I sort of for myself go, well, why do they need to know about it? <laughs> because the people who need to know about it are the people it's for and the people it's for are the people would we, we, we roll it roll that activity out for and I think there's a lot of amazing companies out there who do brilliant community engagement that is not kind of shouted about and and I think that I suppose there's a benefit to shouting about it in terms of raising potentially an awareness of how important that is as part of our core values but then also like On the other hand, I think about, you know, there's an amazing company in Newcastle called Open Clasp Theatre and they have been throughout the whole pandemic doing uh, soup runs every single day within their community to individuals in the West End of Newcastle. Nobody knows about it. Like, I know about it because I'm friends with them. But, like, I kind of go, they don't need to get on Twitter and shout about what they did, how many soups they delivered, because who's that for? Do you know what I mean? So, So I sort of don't mind that people don't know about it. I think the people who know about it people who need to know about it.
0: And is there anything out of the last 12 months that has happened for you and for the company that you think you know what had the pandemic not happened we would never have done x and we're better off for having done that now is there anything that really stands out for you that has has occurred as a result?
1: Yeah huge so the phone call plays I talked about that we delivered I think (laughs) i would never have thought of doing plays over the phone before and that came about because everybody obviously very quickly started looking at digital assets and ways of engaging digitally and we went yeah that's brilliant and we really want to do that but also on the other hand there are sort of i think it's eight seven or eight million people in the uk who don't have digital access so how are we as a company that has always kind of prided ourselves on going how are we reaching the reachable how do we continue to do that and not just kind of rely on people who have internet or have a laptop or have a phone that they can watch that stuff on so we kind of then had this idea of going oh we could call people why don't we call people why don't we send things through the post and so we we also did a sort of letterbox project as well as part of our digital festival the place I call home and and that felt like there was certainly lots of discoveries there of going you for me the 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 phone call plays in a way are my favorite part of all our activity during lockdown because they were live Mm. so we would have We work with a company, an organisation called Befriend in Doncaster. And it's a network of lonely, elderly people. And um, we would ring that network every week at one point and perform a play and have a chat. And it was always chaos because you you didn't know how many people were turning up. And there could be like, (laughs) there could be like, four people or twenty people and you and people come on and say, Oh, it's Jim, it's Betty, it's you're going, Oh, okay. And you obviously can't see anyone. So you're sort of trying to figure out who's there. And then you're all having a chat at the end, but everyone's talking over everyone because they're all you can't hear everybody. But it's it's during the performance they're all completely kind of listening, sat there, engaging in this piece of work. And you can hear the collective laughter and you can hear them, you know, or gasping or or crying at times. And I think that's the kind of thing that I really loved about that project was I I felt like this for me is like the closest to live theatre of all the work we've done during lockdown because I'm sat in a communal experience with these other people uh, experiencing this story simultaneously
0: it actually engages imagination. You know, there's nothing in front of them. It, you know, they're they're listening yep. to these stories. They each have something that looks vaguely different going through their imaginations. And what a wonderful experience. Once we return to opening the doors and going back to live theatre, do you think anything that has arisen from the last 12 months, do you think it's going to stick? Do you think it's going to be still part of our theatrical framework?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think... Um... I think that certainly digital is something that like digital offers, alternative digital offers of engaging audiences is something that we, we at Slow are going to be looking at embedding across all our programmes because Mm. also as a national company, what we discovered, we ran some Zooms for writers, 400 writers, in the end, over Zoom, like support Zooms to check in with writers, anyone could come along, and we just sort of talked about, you know, how people were feeling and different topics of discussion really early on in lockdown. And I think we very quickly went, well, why have we never done this before? Because we're a national company. And actually, how can how can we reach those writers in Bognor Regis and Brighton and, uh, and Edinburgh all at the same time? And of course, that's th- that we managed to do that through kind of necessity. And then when Well, actually, this is something that we should carry forward. So certainly for us, we're going using digital to remove that barrier um, for a lot of people, I think, is really something that we'll continue to embed. And also thinking about audiences who are going to be continuing to shield when um, or, or wanting to be more kind of risk averse in terms of stepping into public spaces so quickly, like making sure they don't feel left behind because suddenly... And, and, and kind of moving forward as well, that might continue, obviously, for a number of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and for people, so for some people, that's just their lives. So, like, how can we not just give them something and take that away? So certainly that's a really important part of what we're we'll doing. But also, I think, thinking about um, about how digital also offers barriers in other ways. And for us, a big part of what we've been talking a lot about is going digital captures of productions, how they feel live and how they don't feel like a second rate option for the live performance which I think is about looking creatively about how you're capturing something and presenting it Um, and there's some brilliant examples out there and I think that's kind of something that we've been going moving forward we want to be able to offer digital offers but not just make that oh we've recorded it um, from three different camera angles and here you go and you can do with that like how can we continue to make that feel high as high quality as being in the theatre.
0: Have there been any sort of real examples, real exemplary examples that, that stand out to you that you think that you know they've captured it? That company or that production has really captured that concept of not making it feel like a second-rate experience.
1: Um, I think Shock uh, by Sam Bailey, which is the Papatango, yeah, capture does it very well. And I've I've not actually seen it yet, and I've, I'm booked on for this week. I think him, but I've heard him at the Almeida. Yeah. Does it brilliantly. I thought Lungs at the old Vic was really well put together and sort of felt very live and dynamic. I mean, I've not watched loads of digital theatre, have to be honest, because I have I live with a partner who isn't into theatre. So I sort of feel like it's really antisocial when there's just two of you in because you can't go out anywhere else. (laughs) So like when I go to theatre in real life, then i'll be off doing that and he'll be off doing whatever he's doing and then and then kind of we'll see each other at home and now i'm like oh i'm gonna go to and i live in a small place i'm like i'm gonna go up to my bedroom and and watch something and you can sit on your own while i walk like it doesn't do you know what i mean so i feel like that's the thing i've struggled with i feel like i've had friends who've lived with theater friends or partners who are sort of like that kind of stuff who've sat down to watch something together and i've not had that because mm. that's just not not
0: what he's into has that been like an, an enforced period of time that you feel like you can switch off though, that you can say, do you know what? I'm yeah. just park theatre to the side for a second and do something else?
1: Yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. I feel like I've started to do like a lot of stuff I wouldn't have done if I'd have been <laughs> If I'd have been in my normal mode of going to theater like three or four times a week as a the standard, yeah. there's other things you don't discover. So, I mean, I'm so bored of telling now, I have to say. But I, I <laughs> there was a point where I was like, oh, I'm finally getting to watch all these things that everybody told me about that I've missed. Do you know what I mean? But like, then I've kind of gone the other way now, and I'm like, oh, I can't to watch telly. But I started doing like a because I'm pregnant at the minute, so I've started doing a pregnancy yoga class that it's on tonight actually and it's and I, I find that really nice because it's like a live thing you're doing with people in the room. It's on Zoom, you chat together, you do your yoga, or whatever. And I'm not really a yoga person, but I thought oh, I should probably do this. <laughs> probably good for the body to do it. But um but I've have been enjoying that and I thought would I have picked that up as early if I had my lifestyle where I was out four times a week because I mm-hmm. know that every Thursday I'm committing to it. And that's felt a really nice thing to be able to do. But in real life I don't I think I find it really hard to commit to a weekly thing.
0: Tell me about your working relationship with Katie, because of course, both at the helm of Payne's plow, what do you both bring to the role that maybe the other person doesn't? How do you complement each other in the in, in the role of joint artistic directors?
1: Um <laughs> it's interesting actually, because we just had a business planning meeting just now that I came off and and Katie was saying at the end of it, Oh, I feel really good when we get to that point where we're sort of because I think what we bring bring I think in lots of ways, me and Katie are both similar, actually, in that we share, we both definitely have the same taste in theatre. I can't think of a show I've seen that she's liked and I haven't, or vice versa. But also I think we, and, and I think we we both kind of have very similar values and approaches to things. But I think, not where we differ, um, but I think that we make each other more rigorous because there's certain things i'm more rigorous on than she is and there's certain things she's more rigorous on than i am and what she was saying in the context of the conversation we just had was oh we're doing this <laughs> we're working up this idea and and i was going yeah but i was sort of playing devil's advocate on it we do that a lot yeah mm-hmm. but you know if i'm a person i go to them and i say that why are they going to care and she's like well and she said what she finds herself wanting to do is being like." Well, well because they will because that's the easy option Just like oh yeah you're right okay yeah how will that and then she'll do the same to me and go yeah but then you've just said that and actually I think this and I'm like no I wouldn't I think like, oh no she's right and so I think that's the kind of we're not afraid to challenge each other and we're not afraid to this it all comes from a good place so it's not like it ever feels like there's a there's a hierarchy in that way and that we'll always kind of we know we work towards the same goal which is get to get the idea better and sometimes you do just want to be like oh yeah that'll yeah that that'll be fine I'm sure we'll work that bit out later but I think when one of us does that the other one naturally pushes back and goes no let's really think about that a bit more though actually now and so I think it makes us more rigorous but I think our skill set yeah I suppose I come from a slightly more producer background than Katie because I was a producer and a director Mm. so I suppose I think in like and I've done lots of fundraising but then Katie's done fundraising as well but I I've probably done a little bit more than she has so there's areas on that which I'll lean into that she she will be very involved in but not lean into as much and then she has like a much stronger eye for me than marketing and and that kind of things and communications so I sort of so naturally she sort of leans into that more than I do but I think we both cross over a lot and a, and a lot of people have said oh but you should think about how you separate tasks and how you kind of which we we, we actually we are starting to do a little bit more now but I think naturally we're sort of there's a synergy between us that we're still quite effective like as in even if we're looking at a marketing strategy together for example then she'll go like well I'm going to I'm going to head up and think about the st- strategy on that end. And you think about that end. And so it's not like we're doubling up on work, but we do have quite a natural crossover of skills, I'd say.
0: So you talk about yourself as being from a, a producing and directing background. Think about the the teenage Charlotte Bennett. Did you ever think of yourself as an artistic director? Did you ever think that at some point, artistic director was on the horizon for you?
1: I think, yeah, I remember the point where I wanted to become an artistic director and I was 23 um, I'm now 35, just turned, <laughs> and um, <laughs> I'd like to add. And for me, it came from I did this amazing project. I did. I mean, growing up, I wasn't. I didn't wasn't didn't go to theatre. Theatre wasn't part of my life. I wasn't from a family that went to theatre or was into it. Like I'm from Yorkshire. I, I had access to Leeds and York in terms of being able to get on the bus to those places. But like it wasn't kind of. But I did kind of get involved in a youth theatre. Uh, the York Youth Theatre and Sarah Brigham who now runs Derby Theatre ran <laughs> used to teach me youth theatre mm. so she's seen me do lots of terribly cringy acting roles <laughs> um, ages like 15 but um and I think I remember two things I remember meeting her and going and I know this sounds this sounds it's actually like silly to say but it's important I think I remember thinking oh she's a northern woman and she's working in theatre and she's got a job in theatre. And I thought, oh, I'm going to go to this youth theatre. I think I copied my sister because she liked youth theatre. I can't remember how I got there, but I went there and and started going every week and I really enjoyed it. And I thought I wanted to be an actor. And, and then I saw Sarah and, and I thought, I, I just don't think I thought jobs existed in theatres for people like me. Mm-hmm. And then um, saw her and thought, oh, I remember telling my friend at school, like going back and telling my friend at school... Oh, this this girl, woman, a girl, woman that's teaching me theatre, and she's, you know, she's from Hull. And she's got, you know, she's an northern woman and she's just like me and you, and she's working in the theatre. So I think, you know, that you can maybe do jobs in this thing. Um, and then and then I remember the other kind of defining moment was Damien Cruden, who used to run York Theatre Oil, who's been a massive support to me over the years, and he um he did set up a programme at York called Takeover Festival, where every single role of York Theatre Royal was taken over by young people under 25 to, who would then kind of be mentored by a staff member in their equivalent role um, and you programmed and ran a three-week arts festival in that role and um, and I applied to become the artistic director and I got it and I was, I was 23 and I remember you went for an interview as if you were going to be the artistic director of York Theatre Royal it was so bizarre <laughs> like you're 23 being like yes you have no idea what an artistic director is and then, and then they sort of went through a six-month mentorship program where they mentored you in that role to build up this vessel, and you're given a budget. And it was complete autonomy because they gave you a budget. I didn't understand what a budget looked like. You need to programme some work. You've got some money to produce some work. What do you want to do with the space? I have your voice. And I remember being in a programme meeting with Damien and and I'd kind of gone in with some ideas. And he said to me, all right, so this is all like your taste <laughs> and <laughs> not everybody in the world has your taste <laughs> it sounds really basic and but I think at that at that age I think I just thought very selfishly like oh well, I think this would be cool well obviously I'm not programming for an audience full of Charlottes that would be terrible so you just sort <laughs> of like just broaden that sense of going what's in there for you've got to think about you know the old you know the the kids the old generation your nana someone you don't know someone who's never been to theatre like and just started to widen that kind of lens for me of thinking of and I love that and it totally didn't put me off or it made me more excited to go oh my god this is well more exciting than just thinking of shows I like so I think from that point I thought I had that taste of being an artistic director in a very small way but like in a way that made me think I love this idea of kind of curating and looking at what why work exists why it's made who it's made for and that's how I start all my work now as a director is going who am I making this for and why I'd never start with oh I really want to make this play because I want to make it
0: It's an extraordinary experience for a 23-year-old. I mean, where do those experiences now lie? Where can, if you're a 23-year-old who is hovering around the fringes of theatre thinking about where they want to focus their experience, where can they step up to now?
1: I mean, I think there are, so that scheme... When that ran, it was originally supported by a nightless, a nightless Ordinary, which was an Arts Council ticket scheme for under 25s. So, and it was a scheme where they'd set up for there to be free tickets for under 25-year-olds uh, across theatres around the country. And York Theatre went to the Arts Council and said, well, hey, like, I think there's a way we can engage more young people in a more meaningful way and spend that money differently. And that's kind of where Takeover came from. So it was sort of based around that scheme. But I believe that scheme still carries on at York. Mm. Theatre Royal and I don't know whether the festival is as extensive as three weeks I've got I've got a memory it's a bit shorter or the system's a bit different because of course the funding isn't there but um but yeah it's so that's exists at York Theatre Royal and I think there are kind of these I I think it's quite a unique one I have to say in terms of like a full takeover of autonomy because like I say I remember our catering manager for takeover was 12 (laughs) years old and and she was so funny and she was she was like amazing she was literally incredible and I remember she was sat there she's like right so I found this local chef we'd have this meeting she's like I found this local chef in uh, York and he's going to do all the and like she brought him in and he did the whole menu and took over this menu and we all had a tasting menu and so it was like every single role from catering in front of house artistic team marketing team everything so it was proper extraordinary and then and then they kind of also like you. You sort of. I remember ringing out of joint <laughs> to talk to him about bringing a show, and there was a really lovely producer called Graham Cowley. And I remember I'd never met him before, and I didn't have a clue how you programmed the show, and and you were just left to it. Like, of course, like Damien was mentoring me, but he was also very clear, like you're going to make some mistakes, and that's fine. And I remember ringing Graham and saying, "We'd like to talk about this show that you've got, and see if you would like to come to York." And he's like, "Okay, great. What what's your guarantee? What what's the guarantee you're going to offer me?" I had no idea what the guarantee meant and I was like uh um uh well uh, um well Graham and, and he was really lovely he just said I explained to him look I'm on this scheme I don't know what you just said <laughs> <laughs> um and he just talked me through the whole thing And he said well basically what happens is this is what a guarantee means and you get a fee to bring a show and this is so I would ask for this and he just was really gentle with me and kind of just talked me through it. and didn't make me feel silly for not knowing at all, just kind of went understood the context. And I think that's really important because you sort of learn by doing. So I think it is unique. Um, I don't know. There may be others out there.
0: I love the the fact that you saw Sarah and you thought to yourself, well, I can I can do this you know there, there's someone how important is that that you are or one is particularly if you're entering the industry how important is it that you see yourself either in an institution or on the stage or as part of the framework of I hate to use the word hierarchy but the the upper echelons of the industry yeah. how important is it that you see yourself oh,
1: massively, massively massively like I think that I think it's about seeing stuff. Cully Thiare, who's also sort of, it's because a mentor, but like, well, she's a mentor of mine, but I don't know if she's officially, but I'm going to call her that, and a friend. And she she said to me um, recently on something she was saying, oh, you know, it's it's about how you show people things they've not even imagined yet, and and I think that's for me is what happened because I just never even imagined that you could get a job in a theatre if you were. A northern working class woman like me, I just didn't think that was. I just thought, oh, well, use it as nice because I get to go and do some drama, and I'm really enjoying it. And I've got a friend who goes. I think that's how I ended up going actually, but I never thought that of that in a in a bigger way. And like I think meeting Sarah, and obviously Sarah is so brilliant and generous and collaborative, and like nor, normal. Normal, I was going to say, but like you know, <laughs> she's not. I didn't feel like she was other. I just felt like really, oh, I see myself in her in a kind of um, identity way and so that for me sort of opened that up in a way that that was really important and I think obviously that goes across lots of different identities and I think that's why it's so important because I, I think also um, I remember going for lots of interviews for a big a big venue for like artistic um, not artistic directorships, assistant directors and and I sort of for some reason I don't know why I just I had about four I didn't get any of them and, and it was meeting lots of very, very well-spoken white men, older white men, and and I just felt instinctively in, inferior. I felt like as soon as I opened my mouth, I think they thought I was thick because I had not... And that, this is... I'm not, not saying they made me feel like that. Like, <laughs> this can all be my own sort of, like, insecurity and bias completely. I mean, I think a couple of them did. But, like, yeah. but but, you know, like, I, I don't think there was intentional, you know, it wasn't a bad experience in a way but I remember definitely feeling on the back foot and I just think that's kind of how you feel in those spaces if you're not represented and that's why the representation interview panels is really important because you just feel different when you're in a space where you feel you're represented and your voice is kind of and and that yeah it's difficult it's a balance of it not being tokenistic and it being meaningful but I think that is why
0: That's important. When you, you work a lot with new writers and when you're going through the process of mentoring them, working with them, directing them, how do you work with them in regards to representation and ensuring that their focus is as a writer really honouring not only the story but also the audience that it's intended for and also the 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 origins of where those stories come from how do you really try to root out that that real sense of ensuring that there's not only opportunities but also representation in that new writing
1: I think part the first point is like choosing the writer that is going to write that piece and and so I think that There's a sort of what I think is a bit of a dangerous misconception that you can only write from your own experience or you can only write your own experience. And and I think that's in part true. (laughs) But I think that there's a kind of complexity to that that isn't always acknowledged sometimes. And I think I know some amazing writers who have never had experience of some of the communities that they represent through their writing, but who through due process have really understood and got under the skin of that. So for example, Open Clasp again, one of my favorite companies, but Katrina McHugh, who runs that company is, um, works with marginalized women in the Northeast to kind of tell their stories. And she herself is a marginalized woman, but for her own set of identities, but she works with other identities of marginalized women to tell and represent their stories um, of which she has no experience of sometimes. And so, for example, she might do a project with sex workers or she might do a project with, with homeless women. And she spends a whole kind of year. It's sort of a co-creative process, really, where a whole she spends at least a year sort of working with different groups and researching and spending time with those people. And they create characters and they create stories and ideas and moments and images. And she then kind of brings that all together in a holistic way to write and create a story and then that is completely consulted with them throughout of going, is this authentic representation? So it's it's never that she just, it's there's a kind of an ethical side to what she's looking at as well of going, I'm not just here to mine for your stories, which obviously can be sometimes connected to trauma in those situations, like, and then kind of put them on stage. And she's thinking constantly about how that's authentic and she's working with them to make sure it is authentic and anything they're not comfortable with doesn't go in, anything they don't feel is right and then there's kind of a and always she's thinking about where that work's going so they tour around the northeast to different community centers and also they tour into to mainstream theaters and they do a combination of touring and like they'll tour politically as well I'd call it so like they've toured shows into the house of commons before to look at prison looking at um campaigning for for women prisoners through a piece of work that was about that and the way women prisoners are treated so it's I think constantly she's got this eye on who's it for and and also who am I representing and how she's in service to both those people rather than kind of in there to kind of put her artistic voice on something for the sake of it showing off her artistic voice, if that makes sense. So I think there's kind of a I think there's an understanding of like um truth and authenticity that you get from a writer when you speak to them. Um I think if somebody's looking to represent community on stage isn't them isn't from their own lived experience and I always kind of ask them what that process is of how they're ensuring that's authentic or how that's going to be represented in a way that feels like it's considerate of the form so I, I think it's kind of that sort of thing for me
0: and what about your own process when you're working whether you're directing or whether you're writing or producing what do you what do you surround yourself with creatively
1: Um, I think it depends on the project I think uh, one of the things for me is depending on the project but I'd say people so for example we did for one sister Run by Chloe Moss is about two women that grew up in care as children and sort of how that journey has sort of affected their lives and and we spoke to and had some people in the process who'd been in care and had different experiences of that as part of the rehearsal process. And for me, that's like the greatest resource. And it's the same with the open class process, that as soon as you meet the women who've inspired the projects that Trina has written, that for me is like the thing I, because you just carry those people in your heart. So like you're making your scene and you're thinking, oh, you've got those people here. So you're not kind of, you can't kind of ignore that <laughs> feeling of having met someone who who's had that experience and what that's made you feel in that space. And so I think for me, it's like if there's any opportunity, if there, if it's appropriate and if, if it's about something like that, which is like a real life situation or people who have experiences of real life experiences of things in the play, I think for the actors and also for myself as a director it's really valuable to kind of have their voices as part of that process quite early on because I think it just roots your choices it makes you think okay I'm thinking imaginatively about this but I've always got that kind of baseline of sort of truth to come back to and then like for other pieces that I might do I think I listen to a lot of different music which and what I find I do I don't know why but like is I'll sort of find one piece of music that I really connect with the piece and I'll just listen to it again and again and again so I I like to kind of walk into rehearsals where I can or try and walk a bit of the way because it makes me think about what I'm doing for the day and so I'll often put and I'll find myself just playing that song on repeat and imagining I think I'm very image-led so as a director I'll sort of imagine images around the play as opposed to text actually and then sort of the music helps me think about images and then that somehow funnels into process but I don't know how and I think that's kind of why also I I often have quite strong feelings about design when I'm working with a designer at the beginning of a process although I don't know they always come with 10 million better ideas than I have but like I always kind of have some sort of sense of what I want it to feel like as a space even if I don't know how that is realised I don't kind of ever go into a piece out thinking I have any idea of how it should look. that makes sense?
0: Yeah, it does. When does that point come in for you? Does it appear suddenly in your brain somewhere near the end of the process? Does it come on opening night? That, that moment where you think, okay, I think now I understand what this piece is going to look like.
1: Uh, quite early on, I think. I think for me, it's as I start a design process. So I'm in a design process at the minute. That's just started quite early on. And, and I think it's when I, I think it's as soon as I know I'm going to direct the play, actually. So if I'm reading a play, I don't think in images, I think in how it makes me feel. I don't think in a staging way. I just read it and I think, how's this piece made me feel? Anything. And then I think if I know I'm going to direct a play, then I'll sit and sort of think, oh, okay, I'm going to read this and think, and I'm thinking about it now through the lens of I'm going to be directing this piece. And what I find naturally happens there is I start to just think of images and space. And then and partly that's probably because I'm due to have a meeting with a designer soon and then I'm thinking, oh, what what do I want to speak to them about? So it's probably like subconsciously there, but I think it's super early, yeah.
0: And how does that dialogue go between you and designer when you first sit down and you've read the piece, you've decided how it makes you feel, then you start to get to that point where you're thinking images. How does that conversation begin? Uh,
1: Well, the the recent conversation I had with a designer, I just kind of share, usually I sort of ask them what images it makes them think of Mm. as a piece of text, and then I share what it's made me think of. And I always say, I've got no idea why it's made me think of this, but it really makes me think of lots of square spaces or like not literally, like again, just. but I think I just sort of share what's in my head a bit (laughs) and go, it makes me think of something that's very like a a really claustrophobic space or I feel like I want it to feel very as if it's really going to suffocate or you know So I think it's then and it's just kind of that initial stage of what it's making me think spatially but not practically because I've I've not got any sort of practical brain like I've got very little capacity for like technical or practical knowledge really so so like I find yeah often I'll have an image in my head and then the, the designer often has to kind of like take that and go okay so Practically that might look like this. And I go, Oh, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But yeah, it's kind of that starting, just very sort of early, early ideas, I think, responses.
0: When does that moment happen for you when you have a splurge with a designer and say, this is what it makes me feel, this is what it makes me think, and then the designer goes away and says, and then you know, comes back to you and says. W- what do you think this is what I've got w- when does that point for you happen that you get those butterflies you get those tingles and you think do you know what I, I had no idea that that was going to happen but that's absolutely
1: yeah. yeah that happened this week actually with a design where I'd sort of brain splurged about some early feelings I had about space and then the designer would actually kind of suggested an idea it's quite specific <laughs> and and I went, oh, yeah, there's something in that, instinctively. It's like a very instinctive thing, like, oh, yeah, there's something in that. And then she'd sort of gone away and um, and created a first draft, and it just felt really, I don't know, it just felt really exciting. And I think that, I think for me it's about, I always think design-wise, like how a space connects to the characters on stage. And and I'm really interested in material on stage, what materials are used. And actually I worked with a brilliant designer last year, Rosie El Nile, who's just amazing, and... On Run Sister Run, and and she really took me on a journey of thinking about colour on stage and how we use colour and why we use certain colours to denote certain things and how do we how do we challenge that about ourselves as opposed like when we go oh I think it's blue like why why are we saying we think it's blue <laughs> or whatever like you know what's our lazy brain doing or our conditioned brain doing and what happens if you put a colour on in the space it feels really unusual what does that do to the feeling of the space because we're so used to seeing a certain colour palette in certain ways on on a stage space like even if you don't know it if you look across lots of design the colour palettes of them can be quite similar so how if you subvert that and put it into a different kind of stranger more unique colour palette What does that do to the space that for an audience feels a bit unsettling or feels intriguing or different, uh, like more characterful in a way?
0: But those provocations go throughout the whole process. I, I, um, a couple of weeks ago, I was in one of your online uh, writing workshops and you did something that just made my shoulders drop and allowed me to tune into... You You, you gave us a provocation and then you put on a piece of music and it was putting on... I, can't even remember, I was going to ask you at the end what that piece of music was. I can't remember what it was. And it was that piece of music that allowed me... And I think that's why I was asking you about the music because I work very much in that in that way that I need to listen to something I need to uh, you know I need to surround myself with bits that make me think that make me respond to something and it was that piece of music for me that really started the, the the flow of the writing do you find that that is a necessary part or do you find that that is just an added bonus for your process that that sense of creative extras that allow you to to move forward
1: <laughs> i'm actually really i've got such a weird music taste and i think I, th- I always think i don't really have a music taste like it's really eclectic and uh but i work as a producer for a number of years for a company called Rashdash, and they work a lot with music like live music in their shows but also when they're in their making processes they always have, seem to have music playing. Like, oh, let's discuss this, and they'll just put on a track while they're discussing something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know, like, because it helps their brains, and I think that's kind of what got me tuned into thinking, oh, yeah, this is actually quite useful to just kind of. I think sometimes I put it on if I'm finding it hard to like get into a flow of something, mm-hmm. because otherwise it can feel a bit like homework. Like, oh, right, do a writing exercise where you th- and you sit in silence and you get your right. pen and paper. And I think just putting on music can sort of help you your brain open up or something Mm. but yeah it's certainly not like a formulaic part of of what I do and I think it very much depends on the piece so when I was working on a show about coercive control with Open Clasp and it was uh I was listening to lots of love songs that had problematic lyrics in them so I was thinking a lot about how love songs that are meant to be about love actually are about control and how the lyrics in them, if you listen to the lyrics of them, like the classic one being the police song and um every breath you take, I'll be watching you, being that sort of on the nose version, but like also lots of other love songs that are sort of really problematic behaviors <laughs> are displayed in them when you really listen to the lyrics. So I was listening, so I kind of for me that was like I just wanted to like listen to lots of them. And then that just got me thinking a lot about the feeling of love songs and the feeling of what we buy into as being an idea of love, which is very much about course of control and what, what is sold to us as love. Um, so I found that really useful to like think, just listen to lots of songs around that. And, and actually the show that I'm directing soon, the writer recently sent me a playlist of songs that she's put together and I, I, I and I, I need to I need to download it actually, but there's um, but I'm really excited to do that because I'm like oh great this will be like in her head of what I've got no idea what's on there like like what was in her head while she was writing so I, I'm not I'm I'm quite easily led I don't have like an agenda of it's this kind of, you know I, it jazz chills me out or <laughs> I really like listening to intense music for this thing
0: a question that I'm asking everyone that's coming on this at the moment simply because it gives just an insight into where someone is at at the moment is what are you reading what are you listening to and what are you watching at the moment
1: <laughs> it's so funny because I was just thinking oh my god what am I reading so i got loads of books for Christmas um i got a Catelyn Moran book I think that's here somewhere i got um i got a book called American Dirt I've got I've got another I've got about four books. And I'm not actually reading any of it, which is terrible. Um, Are
0: they still going to be there at this time <laughs> next year?
1: <laughs> no, <laughs> like do you please like, <laughs> Yeah, it's a weird thing of, I love reading, I absolutely love it. Um, but when I go through stages of being into reading and reading loads and then like absolute like desert time of not... And often because when I commute I'd I'd take a book with me all the time and sit and read but now because I'm not commuting I've got out the habit so it's like a weird habit and I, when I read I, I think oh my god I'm gonna read so much more now <laughs> like when I go on holiday I can read like a book a day I, I like read really quick I love it but actually because uh, I've been well I've been reading <laughs> I've been reading a positive birth book because <laughs> about pregnancy. So I feel like I, I feel like I'm going, oh my God, I need to prepare for pregnancy. So I've or birth. So um my stepsister lent me a, a positive birth book. So I've actually been reading that which is horrific and I don't recommend it for nighttime read it because you're just like, oh it's like freak yourself out and then go to sleep. Um so that that's kind of literally what I've been reading. But purely and I feel like in a way I'm like I must read this while I have time. That's how I feel, I feel like it's homework when I'm reading I'm not enjoying it. I'm kind of just like I must be there, but I have got a book, American Dirt. I can't remember who it's by, but my dad lent it to me and said it's amazing. Um and watching, oh, what am I watching? <laughs> uh, God, what we are now at
0: the very beginning you said that you you're sick of television. Now.
1: <laughs> yeah. With- well no, I have been watching <laughs> this is terrible it's so trashy but it's my boyfriend's Well, I've been watching Vikings on net not Netflix it's Amazon basically like a trashy Game of Thrones um because my boyfriend got me into that and I was like I just want some trash um so I've been watching that I watched It's a Sin which I loved um but sort of destroyed me um so yeah but I thought that was brilliant I am also watching I don't know if i've got any of the regulars on the go oh, i was watching this is us have you seen this is us no so good yeah but i had to take a break from that because it's getting all traumatic but um but yeah that's amazing like kind of quite escapy tv right like definitely kind of like nothing heavy mm. and great pottery showdown that's what i've been watching the great pottery th- show- throwdown throwdown not
0: showdown throwdown, yeah 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 no i've seen it's that basically
1: and- like yeah and i'm not like into i thought i'm not going to be into this i'm not really like anyone who's crafty and that but I I love that. Uh because mainly because the presenter cries every week, he just literally gets really emotional about when people make a great pot. <laughs> <laughs> and I just really like him. Um and what was the other thing? What am I listening to? Yeah. Um I've been listening to most recently Self Esteem's album. what it's cool now. Um, which is brilliant. Um Rebecca Taylor, she's called, and she is a solo artist. It's called Self Esteem. Uh compliments, please. album which
0: is great creating a guest playlist so everyone's choosing a couple of tracks so if you if you were if you were including that one what would be another one that you would stick on the playlist either to complement it or to be a complete on on the track or or, or like feel good or just general doesn't necessarily have to be feel good it's just um, everyone who's coming on is submitting two tracks so over the period of the over the uh first season there's going to be a, a, a playlist that's going to grow um each uh, each person is putting in two tracks
1: oh well i definitely put in in time which is self-esteem no. that's my favorite one on the album uh let's just find out the name of it and i do i do still love dance monkey tones and i do you know do you know that one i just feel like it's just i don't know there's just something that i feel like i feel like when i listen to that it makes me want to go out on a night out and I'm like oh I've miss missed nights out so they'd be my two
0: what are you going to do when you can when everything's lifted where's your where's your dream location whether it be a holiday or a place or a you know where's the what's the first thing you're going to do when you're legally allowed to
1: probably the first thing I'll do is like go and hug my niece and nephew (laughs) Mm -hmm. because I've not seen them for so long and they're just babies and so that that's sort of definitely what I want to do first but I think um, How old are they? I mean, I would uh, five, uh, six, and two. Yeah, but um, but I would. In terms of going away, I mean, I'd really like to go. Oh God, I would just love to go on a plane somewhere hot before I have a baby. But I don't think I'm going to get there because I'm due in June. <laughs> so I think as the world starts to open up, I'll be I'll, I'll be sort of doing that but um but yeah so but yeah I'd love to do that and I'd love to kind of yeah definitely somewhere hot but the main thing I want to do is see my family that's what I, that's all I think about like when I think about when the lockdown nonsense were and, and I know there's always stuff about oh, people are booking holidays and people are going well when can we get on a flight I'm like of course I want to do all that of course I do but actually the thing I really want to do is just like go around to my sister's house <laughs> and have tea and <laughs> and see my niece and nephew or play with them
0: Oh, there you have it episode two of the composite mind with the absolutely wonderful charlotte bennett thank you so much to charlotte for joining me she made for such a wonderful zoom chat buddy as mentioned in the podcast we also have a playlist that runs alongside the composite mind you can find it on spotify under the composite mind and their playlists each episode i ask our guest to submit two tracks that we can add to the playlist And that will hopefully at the end of the season make for a wonderfully eclectic mix of music that has been specially chosen by each of our guests. And as you just heard Charlotte say, this episode we have self-esteem and Tones and I join Amit Lahav's choice of Nina Simone and Stevie Wonder. Thank you so much for listening and supporting The Composite Mind. You can continue to support it by liking it, subscribing, giving it a star rating wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also buy us a coffee. If you go to www.ko-fi.com forward slash The Composite Mind, it will give you full details about how you can support and donate to The Composite Mind to ensure that this not only continues, but also is as good as it possibly can be. Thank you again for supporting us. Thank you again for listening and join us next time for another brilliant person on The Composite Mind.